Well, in Acts chapter 20, we're continuing on following the travels of the Apostle Paul as he fulfills the command that Jesus gave to take the gospel, to make disciples of all nations. And as Paul is doing that, traveling around the Roman Empire, he had just got done spending about two years in a place called Ephesus. And as we come to verse 1 of chapter 20, Paul is leaving Ephesus after about two years there, and now he's heading out back towards Jerusalem, and then he hopes to go to Rome after Jerusalem. That's sort of his general itinerary. Let's take a look here. Verse 1, it says, After the uproar had ceased, Paul called the disciples to himself, embraced them, and departed to go to Macedonia. Well, what was the uproar? We saw that last week in this section of Acts chapter 19. Where there was indeed an uproar in Ephesus, there was a whole riot that was going to uh, consume the, the, the city and the Christian community that was there in the midst of the city of Ephesus. But God showed his goodness. God protected them and quieted down the riot before it became something dangerous for the people. So what did Paul do? Well, right there at verse 7, it says that Paul called the disciples to himself, embraced them, and departed. He couldn't leave the Christians in Ephesus without really demonstrating the love he had for them. And Paul loved these people. He had been with them for two years. He had seen God do an amazing work, not just among the people in the city of Ephesus, but in the whole region. And after those two fruitful years of ministry, Paul really felt like his heart was knit to the heart of the people in Ephesus. But now it was time to go on and he head off towards Macedonia. You ready for this? Now starting at verse 2. Now when he had gone over that region and encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece and stayed three months. And when the Jews plotted against him as he was about to sail to Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia, and Sopater of Berea accompanied him to Asia, also Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derbe, and Timothy, and Tychius, and Trophimus of Asia, these men going ahead waited for us at Troas. So here's what Paul's doing. You saw the map up there. He leaves Ephesus, goes north to the region of Macedonia. And what does it say? Verse 2, he had gone over that region and encouraged them with many words. Paul spent his time working with the churches in that area, Philippi, a Thessalonica, Berea, these were all churches of the Macedonian uh, area. He went there and he just started ministering to them, these churches that had already been established there uh, way back in Acts chapter 16 and 17. And again, if I could just say, this displays something for us that we often forget. And i got to say, as I'm working my way through the book of Acts this time again, I'm impressed with it all over again. The pastor's heart of Paul. You see... What immediately comes out to me when I think about the life of Paul, I think missionary heart to plant churches, evangelist heart to see people come to Christ. And he had those things. I don't want to take away from those at all. But listen, Paul had a very strong, a very vital pastor's heart as well for people who had already made a commitment to Jesus Christ, but they needed to advance on in their Christian life. They need to be strengthened in the foundations. They, they need to be led deeper in the discipleship that they had already begun. That was a big part of Paul's heart, of Paul's calling to minister to those people. And that's exactly what he did with these churches in the Macedonia and then in the Greece area. So 
What does he do? He comes down south to Greece after that. Verse 3, when the Jews plotted against him as he was about to sail to Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So from Greece, Paul had planned to take the long journey by sea directly back to Syria. He goes over to Macedonia, then south to Greece. But what was it? There was some plotting from some anti-Christian Jews made him take a more overland route. You like that little graphic I put up there? No, stop, don't go. There's some kind of assassination plot waiting for you on the ship. And we don't know what it was. Maybe they were plotting to throw him overboard. Maybe they were plotting to kill him. When his, Whatever it was, Paul became aware of this plan because he was going to leave that part of the southern Grecian peninsula and head back towards Jerusalem. But he says, no, it's not a smart way to go. There's some sort of plot against me. And he heads back north accompanied by many companions. And that's what I want you to look at there in verse 4. Look at some of these guys. Uh, Sopater of Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians, Gaius of Derby, Trophimus of Asia, on and on and on. I don't expect you to memorize these names, although I imagine you're going to be bumping into these guys in heaven, right? Right? Uh, Aren't you going to meet a guy in heaven? He's going to have the name tag, Hello, my name is... (laughs) Trophimus, and you're going to, well, I've heard your name someplace, because I'm right there in Acts chapter 20, didn't you read about me? It would be a tremendous thing to have your name mentioned in the Bible. But look, I want to focus in on two names just for a moment that just sort of strike me here in verse 4. And you know, sometimes it's these little, uh, somewhat obscure things in the scriptures that sometimes are the most wonderful blessing. Not that we're trying to make something out of nothing, but there's something, there's a beautiful nugget right there in verse 4 where it says, Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians. Now these guys both came from the church in Thessalonica, right? Which was a good church, good church plant from Paul's. He ended up writing two letters to them later on, right? First Thessalonians and Second Thessalonians. Now, what's interesting about them is their names. Aristarchus is a name that would be associated with nobility. We get our English word aristocracy or aristocrat from this same name. This is a man who would be from the ruling classes. It has the idea of being some of the best in the culture, some of the leading people in the culture. This is the kind of name who would be given to somebody of some status, some wealth, some nobility, some prestige. So you got Aristarchus, okay? Now, who's his traveling companion together in this group traveling together with Paul? His name is Secundus. Now, does that sound anything to you like? It sounds kind of like what? Second. Okay, now, that was a very common name for a slave in a Roman household. Because oftentimes in a Roman household, they wouldn't call the slaves by their actual names. You know, look, let's face it, slavery, even in the more benign form that it was manifested in the Roman Empire, nevertheless, even in that softer form that exists in the Roman Empire, it's still a degrading institution, is it not? And you can only fit that degradation of another person in your mind if you detach them from their humanity. And a person's name represents their humanity, doesn't it? And so what would they do oftentimes with these slaves in a household? They would no longer call them by their actual given name that they grew up with a family, but they would just number them. Oftentimes, the leading slave in a household was called primus, 
right? Number one, prime. What would the second slave in a household often be called? Secundus. Isn't that interesting? So who do you got traveling together from Thessalonica? You got Aristarchus and Secundus, the nobleman, the man of advance. And then secondly, you've got the slave in the household. Now, look, I, I want to be careful. I want to track back just a little bit. This, this is a, a reasonable inference from their names, right? The text doesn't actually give us a biography of these men, but it's a reasonable inference. But I'll tell you what, this is something that both blew the mind of the Roman world and it also offended the Roman world that people from all different classes, all different groups, all different stations of life would gather together in one corporate body called the body of Christ, the church of Jesus Christ, and that they would all be together at that level ground at the foot of the cross. Matter of fact, it offended the Romans. That you would have people in the Roman world talking like this, well, you know, that Christian doctrine in Jesus is Messiah, it sure sounds interesting, but did you know that there's slaves present at their meetings? And there's slaves present just sitting next to everybody. Well, I might have to go and sit next to a slave if I went to one of those meetings. And the idea was, well, that's how it is, friend. That's how it is when we come together. Because in Jesus Christ, we're one people, we're one body. You're not too high that you don't belong among the people of God, and you're not too low that you don't belong among the people of God. There's to be an erasing of those prior distinctions, an erasing of those walls that used to separate us and bind us away. We are one together in the body of Christ. And I suppose one of the things that makes my heart more alive to this than it might have been otherwise is just some of the travel that I've done in my life. And I've been to these places with obscure places, obscure cultures, obscure languages. They're at least obscure to me. They're not obscure to the people who live in the midst of them, right? And, you know, I have nothing in common with these people except we both love our Savior, Jesus Christ. And I feel such a bond, such a unity, such a beautiful family partnership with these people. It's just wonderful. And can I just say, I hope you feel that with your fellow Christians around you. You, you may not. You, you may not feel like this is part of a family. And when I say this, I don't mean just this congregation, although I pray that you especially feel it here. But, but I mean the body of Christ at large in our community, right? I hope you feel part of the family of God. And I know that for some people that just doesn't click. I know that I'm looking out on some faces here. And no matter what I would say, no matter what you would read, there's just this haunting feeling inside of you. You don't belong. I don't know if it's something from your past. I don't know if it's just the way you think. I don't know if it's the devil whispering in your ear, but there's something that says to you, you don't belong. Well, I just want to say, no, you do belong. If Aristarchus and Secundus could hang out together and be part of one body, they're helping the Apostle Paul furthering God's kingdom, then you know what? There's no reason why we can't come together as one body, one fellowship. You know, I think we do a good job of that. But I always have a mind to those who feel like they're out on the fringes, those who feel excluded. There may not even be many of those here this morning, but however many there are, I want you to say, you do belong. It doesn't matter if you're an Aristarchus. It doesn't matter if you are a Secundus. 
We are all here together in one beautiful body. All right, moving on here. Verse 6. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days joined them at Troas, where we stayed seven days. Okay, so they go north up to Greece. Then from Philippi, they go across the water over to Troas, sailing away from Philippi over to the city of Troas. They're back now on the continent of Asia and in the Roman province of Asia Minor, sailing away from Philippi and joining the group that was just described there at Troas. Now, I find that very interesting just in that one single verse there, verse 8, where it says, excuse me, that was verse 6, where it says, we sailed away, we stayed seven days. Have you noticed something there? What's the word of interest right there? We, right? Luke has resumed the we narrative. We, I don't mean the video game, I mean the W-E. The we narrative of, and I don't mean small, like a, a we little narrative. No, I mean the, the, to us together, the we narrative of the book of Acts Because he met them all in Philippi. You know, way back in Acts chapter 16, Paul left Luke in Philippi because he had to leave town in a hurry. There was a fledgling Christian group there that needed some input, that needed some leadership, needed some direction. So he says, Luke, you're appointed. Stay here. Luke stays. Now they pick him up again. And the congregation is of enough strength, is of enough stability for Luke to leave them and to head off onto Troas. He he is now going on with Paul and his companions again. All right, now, verse 7. Now, on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together. And in a window sat a certain young man named Eutychus who was sinking into a deep sleep. He was overcome by sleep, and as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Wow. All right, look, I'll get into the Eutychus thing in just a minute. Don't get distracted yet by that. What I want you to see first is look at verse 7 where it says, Now on the first day of the week when the disciples came together to break bread. Do you realize that this is the first certain example? There may be illusions, but this is the first certain example we have of Christians making a practice to gather together on the first day of the week for fellowship and the Word. And some people sort of wonder about that. They say, listen, I read in my Bible how God says that the sixth day, the Sabbath, is to be made uh, holy, and that's to be my day. Then why is it that Christians predominantly gather together on Sundays? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. Then here we see Christians doing just that in Acts chapter 20. But let me ask you, let me tell you why, why the transition made from predominantly Saturday worship, as it would be true on Juice Friday night or Saturday, or as it has now come to be Sunday worship for Christians. And I'll explain it very simply. Is first of all, under Jesus Christ, every day is holy unto the Lord. Every day is a day of our Sabbath rest before our God, where we rest from our good works and we rest in what Jesus Christ has won for us. Every day is. Therefore, Paul can say in a later passage, one of the letters he wrote to the churches, he says, every day is alike. It doesn't matter. 
We give no special regard to Sabbaths or new moons or these kind of things. Every day is a day that we should glorify and worship and honor Jesus Christ. Every day. You have the freedom. And if a Christian comes up to me and they say, well, I really feel that it's important for Christians to worship on Saturday because that's the Sabbath and that's when we should worship. I put my arms on their shoulders and I say, God bless you, go for it. You have every allowance to do that. God says, if that's the day that you want to worship and meet with other Christians, do it. go right ahead. But yet, nevertheless, the early Christians saw something special in Sunday for a few reasons. One of the reasons was, was because that was the day that it was revealed that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And that made such an impression on the early church that they said, Sunday is resurrection day. That's going to be the day that we celebrate our risen Savior. Praise the Lord for that. Here's the second reason, is that especially in those early days, many Christians did not forsake the Sabbath service at the synagogue. They said, we'll go to the synagogue and be there with the Jews and with the God-fearing Gentiles, but then we'll also have our own meeting together on a Sunday. And that made perfect sense to them, and you could see how it would, right? We're not going to forsake that. We'll do that, but then we'll also gather together. But I'll give you another reason, is that there was a sense in which to call something the Lord's day, to have a day. They wanted to say that, no, this isn't a special day set apart to anybody else, but we're going to call it the Lord's day, the first day of the week. We're going to give that to Jesus. And that was really the mentality. And so we have a glorious liberty in Jesus Christ. Now, I say this as well. There's no denying that our culture as a large says Sunday is a great day for church and it should be a great day. Do you notice this right here in verse seven? Let me just say, Paul went to church on Sunday, didn't he? So should you. So do you. And God bless you for doing it. So that was one thing. The early Christians met together on the first day of the week and they came together to break bread. That means a couple things. They had a meal together and they also celebrated the Lord's table together. We're not told specifically that the Christians celebrated the Lord's table every time they came together. We just know that they did it often and we like to do it often here at this congregation. Here's the second thing I want you to notice. Look at verse 7 again. It also says that Paul spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. Wow, huh? And, you know, it just comes, my thought comes upon me. Maybe I should start being a biblical preacher, right? (laughs) Wow, preach until midnight. Now, on the one hand, you say, Paul, Paul, what are you doing? You know, you you can only, what, what has it been said? And I think it's been said, it's not the Bible, but it's just a good proverb. The mind cannot retain what the seat cannot endure, right? And it's true. There's, there's just a limit to what people can take in, right? And sometimes pastors are guilty of this, right? They just keep shoveling after the cows are done eating a long time ago, right? I'm not trying to say the, well, no, you get it. I'm not, anyway. Okay. But Paul preached until men, I think there was a few reasons for this. One reason was he really believed this might be the last time I ever see these Christians in Troas. You see, Paul was on his way to Jerusalem, and then he hoped to go to Rome. And God was beginning to speak to Paul's heart, and we're going to see this as we make our way through the book of Acts in just the next few times. Paul was, God was speaking to Paul's heart, telling him, 
danger awaits you on your trip to Jerusalem. And when Paul thought about that, he said, "Mm, these places I go, this visit to Philippi might be my last. This visit to Troas might be my last. And you know what? If I really believed that this was going to be the last time I ever spoke to you, I might speak for a lot longer than I might speak otherwise, right? So Paul was going on and on till midnight. But don't miss the main idea here. When early Christians gathered together, not only did they gather together on Sunday, not only did they often uh, memorialize what Jesus did for them on the cross by breaking bread and taking the Lord's table, but they also gave great attention to the Word of God. They did. That's just, just characteristic of the way that early Christians gathered. They gave great attention to the Word of God, and so do we want to here among us. I'll tell you something else as well. The text doesn't exactly tell us that they sang together, but we know from other passages that it was common for Christians to sing. That was something very much that they inherited from their Jewish roots. And it doesn't exactly tell us in this text that they prayed together, that there was public prayers, but we know that Christians prayed when they gathered together. Now, friends, sometimes people act as if there's a grand canyon's worth of difference between the way that the first century Christian did church and the way that we do church today. And I don't believe so. Oh, I know there's a different context, there's a different culture, that there's things that are different about us. We can meet inside a nice big room and we got sound systems and we got the rest of it. But listen, they gathered together on Sundays. They often celebrated the Lord's table. They gave great attention to the Word of God. They prayed and they worshiped together. That sounds to me like a lot what we do. Right. And I think that oftentimes the difference between what Christians did in the first century and what we do today is grossly exaggerated. I believe that if you could get into the time machine or if somebody from that generation could come back here, it could go forward in time to our generation, they would recognize it. Oh, sure, there would be differences. There would be some things that aren't exactly the same, mostly just due to culture and technology and the passing of time. But by and large, they would say, Here's a bunch of people gathering together on a Sunday to worship Jesus Christ, to give a lot of attention to his word, to worship together. They often celebrate the Lord's table together on and on, and they would recognize it, and you would recognize it if you went back there. You know what? To me, that's just a wonderful reminder of the beautiful continuity of the body of Christ from generation to generation, from century to century. I feel it, don't you? that we are connected through these invisible bonds of the body of Christ to believers who were generations before us. We are all part of the same thing. And there's so many things that are similar to the way that we do church today, to the way that they did church back in the first century. Including verse 9. Look at it. A certain young man named Eutychus fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Well, why did he fall down? You know. Because he fell asleep. Well, there's another line of continuity between the church and the ancient world and today, right? Well, people fell asleep in church back then under the Apostle Paul, and people still, well, I'll just say it, they fall in sleep in church today. Now, in Eutychus's situation, we can grant him some grace, right? We have a little sympathy for this young man. It was the combination of the late hour, the heat, The the fumes from the oil lamps there in the upper room probably made the young man fall asleep. But I'll tell you what, even though surely, and I don't mean to be flippant when I say this, 
His fall and death put a damper on the meeting for that evening. I, as a preacher, I draw no small comfort from the thought that people fell asleep under the preaching of the Apostle Paul, at least at times. Now, look, it's true. Paul taught for many hours, and it's also true. Please remember this. Sunday was a day of work for these people. It was a normal working day. So these were people who had worked all day, and then they came to an evening service. And on top of that, Paul starts preaching till midnight. It is sort of interesting that the tenses of the Greek verb there, where it says that he fell asleep, that he was taken with sleep, the, the implication there is that he's being gradually overcome by sleep as he's sort of trying to struggle to stay awake in the midst of it. And many of you know that exact feeling, right? I mean, look, I, I don't mean to be strange about it or talk about it. It can be a hard thing to sit and listen to people. Sometimes I'm just amazed at what a strange thing it is that we do. Where else in the culture, where else in the society do many hundreds of people gather together to hear one guy talk for 30, 40 minutes or however long it is, right? Now look, it happens. And I have to say, as much as I try to work up my outrage against people who sleep in church, I find it very hard to be outraged. Honestly. I remember something that Charles Spurgeon once wrote. He said this. He said to people who come to work, and he was speaking especially of the, of the afternoon, of the evening meeting, uh, of a midweek meeting, when people come and they find it hard to stay awake or, or, or pay attention the whole time. He said, listen, I'd rather you come and that you get half a meal rather than none. You know, that's often how I feel. Look, I, I, I hope that you come and at least get half a meal if you're not going to get the whole thing. And I want you to know as well, too, that I believe that staying awake in church isn't only your responsibility. It's at least in part the responsibility of the preacher to keep him awake, isn't it? I've often had this attitude. Look, give me the first five minutes, right? Lock in with me. Pay attention for the first five minutes. And if I can't take up the ball from there and run with it, well, then maybe you should be refreshed by a nice nap or something like that. Sleeping in church isn't good, and pastors have always had to think of I remember what John Wesley did once. Now, this is what John Wesley did. I would never do this, but this is what John Wesley did. He's preaching in a church, and he notices some guy in the back row nodding off, okay? So the guy's asleep, and listen, I've seen it many times. I've seen people in the front row, not in this congregation, prior congregations where I've served. I've seen guys in the front row, head back, fully locked, mouth open. I'll never forget, way back when I was a Patrick Coward Chapel officer, I saw a guy doing that, and you know, and then, worse upon worse, he starts to snore. <laughs> and when the guy in the front row is head back, mouth open, starting to snore, it's just, can we just say it's awkward? <laughs> but you know what? I, I, I think of the fellow, and, and I, I, I remember him well. Listen, that man had worked all night. And then he comes to church in the morning. And, and I, you know, I didn't like it, the distraction it was to other people. But you know what? God bless the guy just for showing up, just for wanting to be there. All right, but again, back to John Wesley. John Wesley sees a guy nodding off in the back row of the church. And so he stops, he pauses, he looks at the guy. And then in a very loud voice, Wesley starts yelling, Fire! 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 Well, of course, the man wakes up in a shock, right? And he starts saying, where's the fire? Where's the fire? And Wesley says this. I would never say it, but Wesley said it. He said, 
fire and hell for those who sleep under the preaching of the word of God. Wow, that was a tough age, wasn't it? Wow. Sleeping in church isn't good. But let me say this. It's not the worst kind of sleep in the Christian life. The Bible speaks of some who essentially sleepwalk through their Christian life. Paul described it in a couple places. First place I want to show you is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. He says this, Therefore let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. Now, do I understand? Paul's not talking about your conduct in church meetings there, is he? He's talking about the way you live your life as a follower of Jesus Christ. And sleep, that whole idea of sleep, it speaks of so much that belongs to the world, the others in what Paul says there in 1 Thessalonians. But it shouldn't be long of Christians. Listen, when you're sleeping, you're ignorant, aren't you, right? You're not very smart when you're sleeping. When you're sleeping, you're insensible. You're not aware of what's going on around you. When you're sleeping, you have no defense. Somebody could come upon you and strike you in a moment and you'd have no defense. And when you're sleeping, you're inactive. You're just lying there. You're doing nothing. Now, friends, that may be characteristic of people who aren't followers of Jesus Christ, but it should not be characteristic of those who are followers of Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon preached a great sermon on this titled, Awake, Awake. And in that sermon, Spurgeon showed the foolishness and the tragedy of the sleeping Christian. And I love this message from Spurgeon. He did it with three very powerful pictures. First of all, he gave the picture of everybody, of a city that's suffering under the plague. Right? Can you picture that in your mind? There's a whole city stricken with a deadly plague. And there's official walking the streets saying, bring out the dead, bring out the dead. And all the while, there's a doctor in that city, and he has the cure for that plague in his pocket. But you know what? The doctor's asleep. People are dying, and the doctor's asleep. What would you want to say? That Wake up, wake up. And then Spurgeon gave another picture there. He talked about a passenger ship reeling under a storm, and it's about to crash on the rocks, Right? and bringing near certain death to all the hundreds of passengers on board. It's in a moment of great tragedy. And what's the captain of the ship doing? He's asleep. What would you say to that captain? Wake up, wake up. There's danger all around. People need you. There's people who are going to perish unless you intervene. And then thirdly, Spurgeon gave this picture, that a prisoner in a cell is about ready to be led to his execution. Can you picture that in your mind, right? They're letting him in out of jail. So he's about to walk that lonely corridor down to his execution chamber. And his heart is terrified from the thought of, of hanging from the hangman's noose to his death and, and what awaits him after death. And all the while, there's a man who has a letter of pardon for the condemned man. That letter is in his pocket. But what's the man doing in another room? He's sleeping. What would you say? You would say, awake. There's people who can be pardoned and rescued from death if you would wake up. Friends, I'm here to say it, and we'll talk about it again just for a minute from this passage from Ephesians. But there's something much worse than sleeping in church. It's sleeping out and about in your Christian life. I'd rather you catch a few winks right here in the church if you'll live a fully awake Christian life out and about. 
here's the other passage Paul gave, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 14, where he says, therefore he says, awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. Again, I just want to remind you, Paul gives this exhortation to awake. He gives it to Christians. And a Christian may not even know if he's asleep or awake, but it's a very dangerous thing for a Christian to be asleep. Now listen, let me tell you something. There are people who can do things as if they were awake, but they're really sleeping. You ever known somebody to talk in their sleep? Have you known somebody to hear when they're asleep or walk when they're asleep or or dream when they're asleep? And that may be you. You speak, you hear, you walk, you think, but you're asleep to God. You need to be woken up. You might just be the mirror image of Eutychus. You're awake in church. I mean, my quick glance, I don't see anybody obviously sleeping. If you're doing it, you're doing a good job of hiding it. Congratulations. That's good. You're not obviously asleep here in church, but you fall spiritually asleep as soon as your feet hit the parking lot out there. As I said before, I'd rather you catch a few winks in here and be fully awake out there. Verse 10, let's conclude our passage here. But Paul went down, fell on him, and embracing him, said, Do not trouble yourself, for his life is in him. And when he had come up, he had broken bread and eaten, talked a long while, even until daybreak. He departed, and they brought the young man in alive, and they were not a little comforted. Oh, Eutychus, you fell down from the window. You fell asleep, and you fell down. And everybody thought you were dead. But Paul said, No, take comfort and raise him. Now, it's a little bit difficult. Some people say, Well, maybe Eutychus never died, and Paul just pointed that out, and God healed him short of death. Maybe he actually died. and got, I don't know exactly, but let's just say it was miraculous, was it not? Whether or not he was just severely injured and near the point of death, or whether actually he was dead, maybe he was just in a coma. Well, I guess it's not much of a miracle for God to raise somebody from a coma, right? No. Whether, no matter how he was looking, God did something wonderful here. And what did Paul do? It's just classic what it says. Did you see that? It says, he talked a long while, even till daybreak. Isn't that just a preacher? You preach till midnight. Somebody falls out of a window and dies. God revives him by the Spirit of God. And what do you say? You say, great, now I can keep on preaching. Well, again, God bless you, Paul. Then verse 13. Then we went ahead to the ship and sailed for Assos, there intending to take Paul on board, for so he had given orders, intending himself to go on foot. And when he had met us at Assos, we took him on board and came to Mytilene, We sailed from there. The next day came opposite Chios. The following day we arrived at Samos and stayed at Trogolum. The next day we went to Miletus, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. Do you get the travelogue? I'm not going to go through and describe or work through each particular place, but let me just say this. From Troas, Paul worked his way south. And where it says right there in in that last passage, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. So he worked his way down from Troas, making his way to the place of Miletus, past Ephesus, and from Miletus, he's going to call and ask to meet with the leaders of the church at Ephesus. And that brings us right up to the text that we're going to talk about next week. When you're going to see the pastor's heart of the Apostle Paul opened up wide 
in one of the most remarkable speeches, addresses, messages that Paul gives in the whole book of Acts. We'll save that for next time. But may I come back just to a concluding point? Wake up. Live your Christian life awake. But let me just conclude with a very brief word. Maybe there's some of you, you feel like you've never truly been awake to God. You, you sincerely need to do that for the first time. Well, listen, let me tell you how you do it. You put your faith in who Jesus is and what he did for you on the cross. On the cross, Jesus died as a substitute for you. You should have died on the cross for your own sins, but instead Jesus took that punishment, took that pain for you. And if you'll put your trust in him, if you'll surrender your life to him, repent of your sins and put your trust in him, Jesus will bring new life to you and you can know the joy of living life fully awake for the first time. Have you just been sleepwalking through life? Wake up now. And in my concluding prayer, I'm going to give you an invitation to do so and give you an opportunity to respond. Let's pray right now. Father in heaven, we thank you. I thank you, Lord. I thank you, Lord, for such an attentive congregation, Lord. And I pray that you would work now um, among people in our midst. Lord, they feel like they've been sleepwalking through life and they need to wake up in Jesus Christ right now. I pray especially, Lord, for those who need to do it for the first time or they feel that they're so distant from a prior decision that, Lord, they need to do it all over again just to make today a marking point. Lord, won't you speak to their hearts right now? Won't you persuade them to decide for you? Friends, while heads are bowed and eyes are closed in reverent prayer to God, if, if you want to wake up, if you want to trust in who Jesus is and what he did for you on the cross, tell Jesus so right now. Tell him it in a voice, even if it's a whispered voice. You tell Jesus right now, I believe, I repent. Say it to him now. And if, if you've said that to Jesus, could, could you raise up your hand? If you raise up your hand, it's an encouragement to other people. We can give you a Bible. But if that's you here today, raise up your hand. God bless you over here. And you right here. Others here this morning. Bless you back there. I, anybody else? I, I'm going to lead you just in a brief prayer. But anybody else here? You've told Jesus, I want you to know it's not the raising of your hand that saves you. It's, it's the faith in who Jesus is and what he did for you on the cross. But, but you can declare that. You can express it right here, right now. Anybody else? All right, then let me pray for you. You can follow along with this prayer that I pray. Lord Jesus, with what I can, I repent. And I believe. And I ask Jesus that you'd fill my life. That you'd wake me up. I want to live my life in the fullness that you have for me. Thank you, Jesus. Save me. Rescue me. I don't want to sleepwalk through my life anymore. Do it, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.